So Black Red Starts in, in Britain, um, their history is quite interesting because they colonised areas that were bomb sites um, and they proliferated particularly after the Second World War. You are listening to Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Um, you've got uh, one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown. Tony Crosdale. And we have our guest host. Seth Deginger. Um, and this is our long-awaited war episode. This is actually also the final episode of our second quote-unquote season. Uh, we, like what is now going on two years ago, um, we're doing interviews and, and pulling together ideas and brainstorming and doing pieces about a range of topics and we lumped them together in ways that thematically made sense. Like our very first episode was about large carnivores in cities. So we looked at, for example, um, leopards in Mumbai and we looked at hyenas in Addis Ababa and uh, those sort of went together. Here we are at the end with the very last one, the war episode. Before I forget, please make sure to rate us on your podcast listening app of choice whether that's Stitcher or iTunes or Apple Podcasts these days or um, Google Play, anywhere else you're listening to us. If you do, I'm assuming you like the podcast, please give us a nice rating. Uh, leave a comment. We appreciate that. Uh, please hit us up on Twitter at HerbWildlifeCast and send us an email at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com. We love ideas that our listeners generate. After this season is up, uh, we're going to, I think, be a little more opportunistic about episodes. And as you have great ideas, please let us know and we can work it into an episode. Absolutely. And if you are a researcher yourself and you think what you do is applicable, we will pretty much absolutely do an interview with you. <laughs> so get us. And interview or even if you want to be out, if you're out in the field, even if that's like a vacant lot in Phoenix or something, um, you know, recording something from the field. That's great stuff. We love to include that or maybe even build an episode around it. Hey, podcast listeners. I have a quick correction to note. In our episode, Things That Go Flap in the Night, we referred to it being in the style of the Field Notes podcast. I got that wrong. It's really the Field Guides podcast, something we all should just totally know off the top of our heads because we love the Field Guides podcast. So if you like the Urban Wildlife podcast, pick up the Field Guides podcast. You'll love it. Seth. Yes. Uh, tell us about yourself. Tell me. Tell you about me. Um, <laughs> in relation to this, uh, I served in the Army Reserves for six years, and as I was just telling these gentlemen, I'm thinking about going doing another six. Um, it, uh, again, just in relation to this, I deployed once to Helmand Province, Afghanistan. But in addition, I have visited lots of Army bases uh, around the U.S. and Canada, and various other places. Uh, it was in Kyrgyzstan. And I happened upon a lot of interesting wildlife that I didn't necessarily expect to see there. Okay, and we'll hear a little bit about that as yes. we go. Um, how do you guys know each other? Punk scene. That's Punk scene, guess. high yeah. school. Yeah, Northeast Philly, yeah. 1992 <laughs> or three, we know? Yeah. yeah. We spent we more time probably on South Street than we did in Northeast Philly. It's true. Because why would you? Yeah. <laughs> Diners. Yes. This yes. is when South Street was cool. <laughs> South Street is still cool for somebody. I'm sure. Yeah. If you want to buy some nice sneakers. Or... You know what the sad thing was? Is South Street was cool like three years before we got there. Yeah. Like, oh. It's already a tourist trap by the time we got yeah, there. Yeah, was it? Like, not even really. It was just like weird. Like, there was a couple stores, but like, there was like a, a couple, like, Skins was it? There's a couple stores that like were actually cool and sold cool punk stuff. That Zipperhead. When it was Zipperhead was pants. yeah. Uh, and there were still record stores. Yeah, back in the day when people listened to recorded music. Yeah, <laughs> Philly Pizza Company, as featured in Punk Rocker All by Yeah, Dead Milk That's Man. True. My kids don't even know what a VCR is. It's a weird era too, where like we have one still. Yeah. now people are way more shizzled. But back then, <laughs> it wasn't just punks; it was like goths and industrial kids, and just people wearing long sleeve. XL 
Dinosaur Junior shirts, even though they were like a hundred, they were like skinny people, yeah. you know, like that was just like whoever any people just weirdos just all hung out together. Now I feel like you 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 pick your subgenre and go with it. Then we just a bunch of freaks hanging out, drinking Wawa iced tea at the fountain <laughs> in South Street. So um, so cool. We'll hear more about Seth uh, and his travels and stuff very soon. In this second season, we've heard various ways about how cities change over time. Like, for example, in the first episode of the season, we looked at hyenas in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Um, but also in that interview, uh, talking about those hyenas, we were hearing about how as Addis Ababa gets more built up and vacant lots and that kind of thing get turned into buildings, that the hyenas are kind of getting forced out. So sort of the change in landscape in cities and how wildlife and plants respond has been a topic of ours um, that's run through a few episodes. But nothing changes a city perhaps more abruptly and violently than war. And this is the twist in my head about it, is on the one hand, it's hard to imagine anything being worse than being in a city that's under siege or it's just in, in war. I mean, you think of recently like Fallujah or Raqqa or Aleppo, those places like no human being would want to be. But then what happens to the people, well, people like us, are, we hold, wear different hats, but like people who are naturalists or birders or herpers or butterfly people or whatever, um, what happens to, what do we, how do we experience war or how do we look at war and how it affects the cities? Birders don't ever really stop birding. It's hard to imagine a situation when Tony wouldn't look up at the sky and like, or hear something calling and then look up. Safe to say? There's not a situation where that wouldn't happen. Yeah. Tony will be on his deathbed and then like hear something calling out the window and ask them at the hospice to open the window so we could hear it better, you know? I once had a like, I went over to this girl's house and we were getting it on and I literally had a like, you gotta turn off this documentary. It was like, there was like Nature Channel was on and I had like, turn it off! Like, no way I'll be able to pay attention to what's going on. We heard in the recent Palestine episode about how Imad Atrash of the Palestine Wildlife Society, back during the Second Intifada, um, still took groups out on nature walks. You know, in, in sort of the research about urban nature and war, I came up with some other examples. The UK, particularly London, during the Blitz and during World War II in general, was an interesting topic. One of the phenomena that came up in sort of immediate post-war, um, or maybe even during the war, I don't know, in, in London was sort of the, was how a certain kind of songbird called a black red start ended up occupying new habitat, which was the bomb craters left from, or just overall bombed out areas left over from the Blitz. Um, and so when we were talking to David Lindo, AKA the urban birder, for that episode, when Taiki and I were interviewing him, we asked them a little bit about the Black Red Starts, and so I'm going to play that now. Uh, David, I'm talking about Black Red Starts. The Black Red Star is a very handsome bird, in my view. It's, um, it's a... If you can imagine something like a, a Phoebe, it's that kind of size. Um, so like an Eastern Phoebe or Say's Phoebe, that kind of size. But that's where the resemblance ends. And... The black red star male, um, as the name suggests, is predominantly black, greyish black on its body, and it's got this amazing red tail that it wags, it quivers, and that's how they get their, their name, red star, because they, they have that quivering. You've got the, a species called the American red star, which is, in fact, you're one of your American warblers, uh, but it's not related in any way, really, just, just by name. So black red starts in, in Britain, um, their history is quite interesting because they colonized areas that were bomb sites um, and they proliferated particularly after the Second World War up until I say the early 70s when redevelopment started. The reason why they like the bomb site areas is because the, the habitat there which is all very derelict um, resembles the, the natural habitat which is cliffs, well they live on the coast normally, places rocky areas, so it resembled the scree that they'd find in those areas. So they quickly became um, urban birds in Britain. I think the first nesting record was actually back in 1923 um, when Wembley Stadium um, was being built. So oh. literally a stone's throw from where I, 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 I lived when I was a kid, but back in 1923. 
But the thing is, since um, the 70s, their numbers have declined because of rebuilding. And it's now got to the point, I think there's less than 100 pairs at any given time during the summer um, nesting at the max. Normally it's less than that. But there are uh, winter visitors in the uh, in winter, obviously, that come over from the continent, which sort of boost the numbers. And they tend to turn up and hang out along the coasts. Okay. Interestingly, when you go across the channel into France and into Europe, black red starts become very common, particularly in urban areas. And for many years, people are wondering, how come they're common there and they're so rare in Britain? And one suggestion is that our very own robin, our national bird, they are in Britain very much city and urban birds. And robins attack anything with a red tail. I've seen it myself. They, when I see a black red star, they attack them on sight. They're dominant over black red stars even. They're dominant over them and then they force them out. Okay. Whereas in Europe, the robin is still essentially a woodland bird, like it was in Britain up until the Victorian age. So the black red star has been able to colonize uh, urban areas in Europe without being threatened by robins. So that could be a possibility as to why they're so rare in Britain. But they're fantastic birds. They are iconic urban birds. They are found in Britain in London predominantly, but also in Birmingham and further north in Manchester. They're the sort of main areas, Sheffield as well, uh, with other spots around by the coast, but mostly in those urban areas. So similar to the observations of black red starts, London naturalists were observing all sorts of stuff. And so I had found a, I had found articles um, published by the London Natural History Society. I pulled them out of a book called London's Changing Natural History, classic papers from 150 years of the London Natural History Society, published in 2008. Um, and I also looked at the introductions to the different sections of articles. People started getting out and observing the changes in plants and wildlife starting in 1941 and into 1943 and then in 1947 got a lot more organized about it and then published papers from 1948 through 1955 focusing on places that had been bombed in london they focused on an area called cripplegate i haven't been there either okay because i've never been to london i've been Uh, to london i've never been to Okay. Great name, isn't it? It is. I've just been <laughs> to the airport. So, that's all. Someday we got to make it to Cripplegate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was heavily bombed during the war, and they sort of approached it like any botanist or ecologist would, I guess. They, they sort of set out lines and divided it into plots to study, um, would do transects of the area, um, see what they would observe, and visit places over, like, through the seasons, over the years to chart, like, what plants were growing in, what kind of bugs were flying in and getting established. They categorized habitats particular to a ruined area. So like they would have like a four part categorization categorization that included like basement floors because you would have buildings that were, had been bombed and basically were gone. And even if you cleared away the rubble, you'd still have the basement pit, um, which became its own sort of microhabitat they would study because it would hold water a little bit. Even if the water kind of trickled out through the cracks, it would still have a lot of moss and sort of semi-aquatic stuff. Hmm. Um, they, uh, I got a kick out of seeing species that we have in Philadelphia that are, are wasteland plant species. So, like, they have a lot. They, they found, like, our horseweed growing hmm. in a lot of places. Lamb's quarters. These are things that you'll see growing out of the cracks in your sidewalks pretty much anywhere in America. And, and indeed, Europe as well. I mean, you imagine all these people had, like, if they were in London during the Blitz or had that experience fleeing to the countryside, I mean, people they would have known who got killed and their lives totally upended. And who knows what else was going on in their lives, but still, this for them was was a weird opportunity to jump on a novel ecosystem right in their backyards. Um, And in a similar vein, I had looked at research on the other side of the war, I guess, the ecology of ruins in Germany, uh, focusing on Berlin, there's a historian of science named Jan Lachman. Jan Lachman, a historian of science, wrote a neat article in 2003 in the journal Osiris called Exploring the City of Rubble, Botanical Fieldwork in Bombed Cities in Germany After World War II. Perfect for this. And talked about how Berlin was like a third destroyed in World War II. And the ecologists there seized on the moment to study what plants would grow up in the rubble. 
for example, our black locust trees apparently did very well over there. Mm. And we had we have a German friend. We were asking him about it, and he was like, "Of course, there's black locust trees everywhere." And it was sort of like evident to him that they're just a common tree species in Berlin. But apparently, um, a combination of like the land getting just like totally bombed, and then a lot of uh, new people and trucks driving through and everything else, like war equipment driving through, like help spread the seeds of those. Black locusts are American trees, so did the Americans bring them over? I guess maybe they were there as like ornamental or hmm. garden kind of plantings, and then just like often an alien species does really well in disturbed areas because of the competition gets thrown out of whack. Exactly, yeah. and the competition was gone because it was like you know obliterated by bombs. Um, and so you also had uh, Alanthus trees popping up everywhere, which you know also happened here without the, <laughs> without bombs. And then uh, goldenrod, Solidago, Solidago or Solidago? Solidago. I mean, I'm sure. It, all Latin names are pronounced differently by different people. Solidago Gigantiana. This paper focused on a ruined patch in the city. Oh my God, I mispronounce this too. A triangle of land called something like the Dernberg Drake. Apologies mm-hmm. to my friend Matthias and any other Germans who might be listening. This was an area that ecologists had studied up through the early 80s. And so then when, and like most of the city that had been bombed, people redeveloped it. No one was like, hey, let's leave the ruins when it's a third of the city. So the researchers, the ecologists, have been studying it in, in a, what struck me as a kind of funny incident. In 1978, the authorities had cut back some of the trees and cleared it out a little bit because it was a popular place for prostitutes to sleep with their johns. And they wanted to open it up a bit. But that, of course, like tore out all these trees that the ecologists had been tracking and studying. And then... It comes up a lot where you're like... It, me working in parks where I'll lead a bird watching trip and they'll have great birds in the canopy, but there'll be no like understory birds except for like maybe like the one plot that's a urban garden and there's like sparrows like in the in, <laughs> yeah. the, in the fallow plants or whatever. But whenever I bring up like wanting to have put in some understory, people are like, no, prostitutes will be in there. Jeez. It's like the, the effect of fear of prostitution with on the understory of urban parks is a true is a real phenomenon. And I think it's a pretty minimal impact. I mean, like. As someone who's spent a lot of time in the Mount Moriah Cemetery, number one, there was like a mattress, a couple mattresses back there, which I'm sure were actively used at night. And I would go out there and turn them over to look for snakes. And there were tons of snakes under those mattresses. They were awesome. And then, yeah, you'd see condoms and like used douches, I guess. I mean, like that kind of stuff. But like, like what was much worse was people dumping like pit bulls back in there. Yeah. Because those are, some of them would just be pathetic and some of them would run out and like bark their heads off at you and kind of scare you if you're in the middle of like this giant cemetery. So of all the things I was scared of, it wasn't the prostitutes. Or mattresses. Or mattresses, exactly. Like a mattress yeah. at, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, what's it going to do to you? Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to roll around in it naked perhaps, but you know, that just wasn't in the cards that day. And getting asked if you want to party every once in a while is not a bit the worst thing. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, anyhow, the Berlin authorities disagreed. And so then later on, there was a, a bigger struggle over the space when they wanted to build a hotel there. And ultimately, they built a hotel that sort of ruined it as a study plot, apparently. It was interesting to see the similar struggle that we have when it comes to developing urban wasteland in general. You know the coal period is in Port Richmond. So there's this big area. It's huge. It's huge. And it's, total, it's mostly overgrown. People go fishing there. I'm sure I'd find some mattresses back there if I looked. A lot of people, kids, just go there to spray paint stuff. Um, Ride dirt bikes. Exactly. And there are neat snakes back there. And it's also just a, a, a oddly beautiful kind of place when you're on this, like, forested, decrepit, old... I've gone there with you. Yes, you have gone there with me. I bet it's probably, it's what, like 30 acres? It's big. It's big. It's really big. And so there's talks of it being developed because it's this big, if you want to develop a, a, if you want a big track of land in the city that doesn't already have something on it, it's a pretty choice spot. I mean, it's right off of I-95, maybe a few blocks off the L, but still not terribly far. It's right on the river. So if you want to do something that involves the river, it's right there. Um, and so it's a sweet spot. I mean, it's right off Columbus Boulevard. You understand why someone would build on it. I would encourage that in a sense because it's better than tearing down a like an area out in the countryside to build something. But I would lose a place that I treasure as like an urban natural space, you know. 
I mean, I see birds that are probably unremarkable once you're out, like in New Jersey and stuff, but it's not uncommon for me to text Tony from, from there being like, okay, I see something that looks like a warbler. It's like a, like a bolt or a black and white pattern. It's working like up and down trees. He's like, it's a black and white warbler. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so that kind of thing. Or I see lots of butterflies there as the seasons go. It's a pretty great place. But I'm going to be pissed off when somebody finally develops it, even though I kind of get it. And then another interesting element of the, this whole Berlin story is that a lot of what we think... Now, these days, urban ecology is sort of having a moment but it's been several decades in the making. And a lot of the fieldwork techniques and sort of the, the way people think about how to do, how to study urban wastelands and spaces came out of this, I guess, German research into bomb city spaces. Although I feel like I see the same kind of thing when I read the London articles too, doing similar kind of work. But the idea of applying the fieldwork techniques that you use out in the Amazon basin or something to bomb craters in London or Berlin, then is an easy transfer over to how do you, would you apply that to the plants growing up in the cobblestones in the old city of Philadelphia or something. So it was an interesting sort of historical moment for urban ecology research. So um, I see there's I see the analogy between the deindustrialized spaces and the bombed out spaces, but is there any comparison to places urban or otherwise? that have been destroyed by natural disasters and how they are re, repopulated by plants and animals. No I'm, sure, I'm sure there is isn't another episode in the works. Okay. Yeah. You know. Field trip to Houston. It seems that, yeah, it seems that that's exactly what I was thinking. Puerto Rico is what I was thinking, but San Juan. We can got, drive to, yeah. to Texas, yeah. yeah. Puerto Rico's a long drive. I'll be there in a, a couple of weeks. Texas or Puerto Rico? Texas. What are you doing in Texas? Well, it's, it's for my fiance's Family. Oh, from. by the way, Tony got engaged. I did indeed. <laughs> and uh, I don't see a ring. <laughs> and uh, just gotta make an honest man. We also just took a new step too. We got a cat. Wow. We 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 took in a and so I'm going to Dallas or to visit Angie's family for Christmas. But because I have more way more time than she does, I'm flying five days early and I'm doing a little whirlwind tour around like Central. Texas from Dallas to the coast and back. No, but dude, there's so we had a little snippet from a dude in Te- a Herper in Texas in Dallas because the Trinity River is this like river that flows through Dallas. It's been kind of channelized and has like it looks really ugly apparently, but it's got like some bottomland forest along it. So if like you're in Dallas and you want to, if you're really jonesing to walk on a trail and be sort of in nature, yeah, um, he goes there and he finds tons of. Um, what to me are, I mean, they're common snakes, but still interesting stuff, like broad-banded water snakes and mm. cottonmouths and copperheads and stuff. I don't know how it is for birding, but I imagine it would be, like, if you're in Dallas and just want to get away for a minute, like, it's a nice spot. Yeah. So, tell us about the cat. Yeah, so, um, Andy's friends, there is a cat that's been visiting their backyard, the cute little tortoiseshell. Exotic invasive. My cat Lola died two weeks after Angie and I moved in together, and her cat died two weeks before we moved in together. And I think it's been, you know, a few months now and enough time to mourn our cats and get a new one. And, you know, this cat won't be eating any wild animals anymore. It'll be eating plenty of domestic animals that we had slaughtered to feed it. But it won't be. <laughs> and it uh, might eat some mice that make it into the house. Yeah, well, my whole idea is people are like talking about animal rescue that like taking in a a, a feral cat does no, something good for animal rights. Kind of goes out the window when you consider that you have to kill animals to feed it. Does it really? Yeah, you know. And uh, the I, vegetarian in me totally agrees with you. I think I learned that there's. I still a, have a freezer full of mice and rats to feed to my snakes. Though, yeah, so. and I think there's like a. Was about a, a third of the meat consumption in America is for pets. Really? Really? Yeah. Wow. Apparently, we feed the human population of France. Hey, podcast listeners! To learn more about environmental impacts of food consumption by dogs and cats, read the article "Environmental Impacts of Food Consumption by Dogs and Cats" by Gregory S. Oaken, published August second. 2017 in the journal Plus One. I'll just like to point out that Tony, who likes to start fights on Facebook about whether one should support feral cats outdoors or bring them indoors, even if that means euthanizing ones that can't find homes. Tony is often cast as sort of a cat hater. 
And he is far from it. <laughs> yeah, they're incredible. They're incredible companions. <laughs> yeah. I just euthanized my cat of seventeen years. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I had another cat. Yeah, yeah. My, my cat of seventeen. Do you years. want any more? No, not at the moment. Okay, it just happened. One thing, though, mentioning about the bombing and disturbance. Yeah. Um, locally, a phenomenon that we have is at Warren Grove bombing range in the Pine Barrens is one of the, like, the uh, best spots to see Pine Barrens gentian and a few other cool plants because of the constant disturbance. And also every few years, it seems like, maybe it's every longer than that, but every now and then they sort of fire fire down there. Yeah, fire is part of the ecology. A lot of the trees are just rottenness. Right. You know, so an S-16 dropped a flare by accident onto the Pine Barrens and it went up like no one's business. And it's actually not bad for the forest, you know. It's actually good it, for the forest. It's good for the forest. What's crazy is like they have like all these like shipping containers, like set up as like targets, and like in the middle they have like a, a mock. They have a mosque, like it looks like a mosque. And the idea is like I guess don't it, hit the mosque. Yeah, don't hit the mosque. It's kind of crazy to like yeah. think think the like you know to think about that you know. Maybe that's a crude segue. Um, I've actually been on a lot of ranges like that that have, you know, mock villages that you have to walk through just, you know, for training purposes. And there's always a mosque and you have to treat it differently than all the other buildings, rightfully. Yeah. And, uh, but sometimes they put their snipers in the, you know, their mock snipers in the mosque. So, but speaking of forest fires, that made me think of, I was on a, just a regular machine gun range in Texas at Fort Hood. And we started probably... 50 fires <laughs> because the heat of the bullets just hitting the dry foliage. It was a, I believe if I recall correctly, a 50 cal machine gun range. We actually eventually tasked out a crew eventually to drive down and put out the fires. <laughs> you know, we gave them shovels. We didn't have any water. We were in the middle of the desert of, or not desert, but the dry whole, land whole country, of central yeah. Texas. Yeah. Huh. Fort Hood's known for having uh, they do good work there with the they have a good population of gold, of of uh, golden cheek warblers. Oh, really? Are, uh, yeah, the only breed in the hell country of Texas, and uh, and is Fort Hood's one of their main strongholds. Cool. So, what else did you do when you were when you were in Helmand? Yeah, I was in Helmand. Um, on the way to Helmand, uh, we stopped in Kyrgyzstan. And something I noticed immediately was the amount. We went to Manas, which is a, uh, I think it's a former Soviet airbase that the Americans have been had been renting from the Kyrgyz for um, a decade, I suppose, uh, to use for our purposes in Afghanistan, because it's relatively close to Afghanistan. And uh, one of the things I immediately noticed there was the amount of birds, actually. And I thought of you, Tony. Because I, I'm not a birder. My father was a birder, and I, I thought of him and you. And they were just, I mean, they were really odd-looking birds. I wish I knew enough about birds <laughs> to tell you what I should have. What I, I was thinking, I should have brought the guide to the center. Um, yeah, the, some of them were big, and they weren't, you know, crows, but they were, you know, crow-sized birds and just very odd-looking uh, to my untrained eye. And the only thing I could imagine is that they were drawn to us because we just waste a lot of food and yeah. I'm sure they were really drawn to the airstrip there was no we didn't bomb anything out there but um, definitely were changing the ecology where we were staying it was all what they call transient housing it was all people on their way in or out of Afghanistan Okay, which was you know it's still a five hour flight to Afghanistan but it's where a lot of the staging is done and it's probably a ten minute drive from the airport so I don't know if it related to that more than just a bunch of Americans throwing food on the ground. That would have something to do with and it. And a ton of birds. And and who knows what the trash disposal process was. or Probably very little. Probably not a big captive landfill. With Probably not. Yeah, I, yeah. I really don't know. I mean, I know in Afghanistan we just burnt everything. But, um, yeah. But Kyrgyzstan's a beautiful place. Big mountains. They make the Rockies look little. Yeah. That really big mountains. Uh, is that kind of like the edge of the Himalayas? It is. I believe it is. Um, this is the Hindu, Hindu Kush. Kush. Yeah. Which oh, okay. is kind of the spur of the Himalayas. And they're big mountains. Oh, man. Big, big mountains. So, yeah, then I went to Afghanistan. And uh, I, I mean, one of the, I don't know 
how to even discuss this. One of the more interesting wildlife sightings, we were actually on uh, base Leatherneck in Helmand, and uh, we were taking a class about identifying homemade explosive. And we were all just sitting there taking a break, and a jackal just, there were about 20 of us just sitting, sitting around, just sitting in the sand. And a jackal was probably, I'd say, 100 meters from us, and just started walking up like, hey, what's up, sort of thing, eyeing us up. There are 20 of us, and I think he got the idea that was probably not the best idea to keep <laughs> approaching. Uh, we were all carrying rifles or, or heavier stuff, and uh, he just kind of, he didn't run away. He was very... Um, I don't know, he didn't run away, but he was clearly scared of us, but didn't want to show it, and just mm. sauntered off, eventually. Mm. Um, I don't know what jackal's normal behavior is, but... What you saw was most likely a golden jackal. Okay, that's what you were talking about in Tel Aviv, also? In Tel Aviv, also. They have a Some huge more. range. That's, not one that's a huge range. Tel Aviv is... They go into Africa, too. Oh, they go, oh right. Awesome. Red bill. Um, they go into Africa. They go from like you've seen them in Sri Lanka. Yeah. Um, and are they, they kind of the end up in southeast uh, in southeastern Europe. Are they kind of like the old world version of a coyote. It's exactly what they are. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, the strange thing though is that apparently coyotes like evolve from wolves and not from jackals. Right. Like they don't like it's not like a coyote is a is a jackal that that went through the bearing. Right. State, you know. Uh, apparently they uh, they're like an offshoot of. Like great, they're closest relative is a gray wolf. Okay, and they do, and they hybridize them sometimes. Parallel evolution to the yeah. jackals. Yeah, hmm. convergent evolution. Yeah, is parallel evolution a thing? Did I just make that word up? I'm not sure. Uh, you you mentioned other things uh, like bears in Alberta and like yeah, bears actually were Wisconsin. Wisconsin. I, we were at a training in Wisconsin, and um, I drew the short straw and was sergeant of the guard one night and all of my guys were sitting out in their guard posts and we kept getting calls on the radio about bears so I was the guy because I was sergeant of the guard that had to take the walk to all the guard posts and make sure that nobody had gotten eaten by a bear and we didn't it was but a training black bears yeah okay. they are they're gonna run away yeah but it's still a little nerve-wracking Right. No, were you armed then in uh, Wisconsin? No, I mean, we had a rifles, but we had blanks. It was uh, just training. But right. I'm sure a blank would scare off a black bear. Yeah. Yeah. Black bears are... They're whips. They are. No, they're, they are not. They're they burly are. animals. They're and burly they, animals. They've killed about as many people as grizzlies. Well, yeah, but... There's but way more of them, though. Not, like, just happening upon them in the woods, usually. I mean, I remember reading about a recent guy got killed because he was, like, literally poking his head into a den. Yeah, you know, like. But they've also like ripped people out of tents and eaten them, and it happens sometimes. It doesn't happen that often, considering how many black bears are out there and how many people are. Well, it's straight true. But like, they're it's like sharks, you know. Like, yeah. It's gonna happen every now and then. But like, man, I've seen, I don't know, not every day, but I've seen plenty of black bears, and they have all taken off running the second they yeah. realize that was there. That's why I call them limbs, because like, they any of them can slaughter me, but like, yeah, I, but they don't have any desire to. Yeah, I go like. That and then like a cow could probably kill you if it really yeah. got a bug up its ass to kill yeah. you. Cows are wimps too, you know. Oh, another weird little critter that we saw everywhere in Afghanistan, and again, I don't really know what they are, but they are—they look like across. They look like a scorpion the size of an ant is the best way to describe mm. it. And I've tried to Google that, and I really don't know what they were. But they were everywhere. Did they have tails with stingers on them? Or they had they... tails that looked like stingers. I didn't get stung by one. It there looked like there a... are small scorpions out there. That They were everywhere. Yeah. They were really the size of a... There are a scorpions. Big-ish, biggish ant. There are lots of scorpions yeah. that size. And they are tough. We would try to stomp them when they were running across our stuff. And very resilient little critters. Yeah. And they can give you a good sting. I lived in Mexico a little bit in college, and they, I'd, go, I'd go around my apartment and clear them out. Really? Just because they end up on the walls hanging out. Really? Yeah. Well, they were probably different, totally different species, but I'm sure that there are small. There's also, like, other weird, like, arachnids that, you know. The solifugids? Is that how you say it? Wind scorpions? Yeah. 
they're like these, they're, they're not really, they're other arachnids. They don't have like tails and stingers on them, but they look like, kind of like scorpions and kind of like really burly spiders. And they're like super fast. I found a, a like a tailless scorpion in Philly once in my bedroom in Northeast Philly. Really? Really? Yeah. Well, neat guys. Um, any more thoughts on? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna over Thanksgiving I'm gonna record my uncle about the tiger in Vietnam. That's pretty soon actually. It's like later this week. All right. Yeah. Cool. So I hope I hope this also spurs more maybe vets to get in touch with us too. You know. Yeah, and I think it's it's also something that vets. Um, I'm also I remain in search of someone from Gaza to actually interview. I'm still working on that from our previous Palestinian contacts, um, and then little things where it's like it might be ridiculous to even try, but like but there, there's like birding websites for like. For birders who are traveling around the world, like who you contact when you happen to find yourself in yeah, Lagos. Yeah, bird or birding pal. Yeah. Yeah, and so like, there's still pages up for who you call when you're in Syria. They're from 2012, mm-hmm. and like, I haven't gotten any of the Syrians to write me back. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> they might be dead or something. I mean, it's awful to think about. They might be in like Belgium, or they might be dead. Who knows? Yeah. Um, or they just can't get out messages easily. They're not or, on email these days. Yeah. Right. Or you're not their number one priority. That's probably true also. And so I'm I'm still curious to hear from the modern day equivalent of the birders in London back in nineteen forty three, you know, yeah. who were pulling out their binoculars in a lull in the fighting, you know. Hopefully we'll we'll bring some of those kinds of experiences to the podcast also. Excellent. So it feels weird to wind up the last episode of our second season, but we've got more stuff in the works right now. So if you have any ideas for us going forward, you can hit us up on Twitter at HerbWildlifeCast. You can email us at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com. Um, please rate us on your podcasting listening app of choice and rate us highly. Spread the word about it. Um, let your friends know about it. Find us on Facebook and use that as a platform to spread the word. We want you telling people who you think will like the podcast about the podcast so more people listen to it. Thank you, Seth, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, and Tony... It's been a great season. Indeed. <laughs> um, like we're concluding something. We're going to see each other. We, we see each other all the time. Yeah. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to wind up this episode with an interview I did with Nasreen Azimi of Green Legacy Hiroshima. And you'll hear about how after maybe the, the most like horrible, the most landscape altering act of war in human history, the you know local gardeners or local tree enthusiasts in Hiroshima found surviving trees tended to them and then more recently an organization sprung up uh, to share seeds the progeny of these bomb blast survivor trees from Hiroshima as sort of like a, a program of peace I thought it was a neat way to end it um, and I saw a beautiful black eared kite soaring over the the museum in uh, Hiroshima I don't know it seems beautiful birds soaring over the, and the museum has this like ruins left over of a building from the from the bombing. That's awesome. Well, thanks guys for listening. Cheers. See you next season, which is probably in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Nasreen Azimi, and my uh, title with regard to the trees is uh, co-founder and coordinator of Green Legacy Hiroshima Initiative, which uh, was founded in 2011, in July 2011. And I'm also a senior advisor at the UN Institute for Training and Research. I was a lifelong international bureaucrat. And the last couple of years, I decided that uh, I should throw myself into the life of NGOs and activists. So there. The uh, trees that are uh, classified by the city of Hiroshima as uh, atomic bomb trees are about 170. It's not an exact science, but these are 170 trees within a two-kilometer radius of the hypocenter. And uh, these are trees that authorities can actually verify as having existed before the blast. We are certain, and our master gardener is also certain, that there are other trees and plant lives that uh, existed, but uh, there is no proof. In other words, the the fact that uh, the city of Hiroshima was far-sighted enough to start categorizing these trees some time ago 
and people actually cared for them has made it possible to say with certitude these 170 trees existed before the atomic bombing. Now, Nagasaki also has um, what they call in Japanese hibakujimuko, atomic bomb trees, but uh, they were not as active in registering and categorizing and cataloging them. And so uh, they actually don't have such a clear-cut uh, list of atomic bomb trees. But in Hiroshima, it's certain 170 survived the atomic blast. Of these 170 trees of uh, roughly, I would say about 20 to 22 species, um, 40, about 40 trees were exactly at the same place that they were at the time of the atomic bombing. By that, I mean that the others were either moved, uh, they they uh, sprouted from the trunk because everything else had disappeared. But roughly 40 trees within this category of 170 trees were exactly at the same spot. They are bruised, they are wounded, they often have a sort of one side is black, but they have stayed put and they bend uh because of the damage on one side and the fact that the cells have not grown as healthily for the first roughly 10 years, they tend to, to bow towards the hypocenter, which sort of gives even more symbolism uh, to these. So, so there are, there's a professor in the Technology, Technology University of Tsukuba, which is near Tokyo, and for the last three years he and his students have been doing a study to identify and figure out the exact uh, latitude and why and how these roughly 40 trees uh, were located. And it's been really fascinating to watch that study unfold as well. Part of what fascinates me about the project before we get to the current project is that is that someone thought to, to catalog and, and sort of recognize these trees. I mean, at, at what point in, let's say, the rebuilding and recovery of Hiroshima, did the project come about to, to locate and identify these trees? It, it was a long process, but I think the, the saying in Hiroshima, because in Nagasaki, the bomb was sort of uh, very spread out. It was on one side of the city. In Hiroshima, it really fell in the center. It fell on the Manhattan of Hiroshima. Uh, and Hiroshima is a bay, it's a delta, it's surrounded by mountains, which was one reason why the Americans actually targeted it, because they could control, they wanted to see also the effects, and in, in a ball, it's in a ball, so you, you could better control uh, and understand the effects. But anyway, the the entire center of Hiroshima disappeared, one-third of the citizens were killed, immediately or within a few weeks and months. So so there was for a very long time, actually a couple of months, there was a debate whether Hiroshima could even be rebuilt in the same place. And many were saying, why don't we just go and build Hiroshima 10 kilometers from here? Because we also don't know what is this radioactive ash and we just know that people are getting sick and falling dead. Uh, and and but this being Japan, the, the survivors said we are going to rebuild at the place of our ancestors. But there was great gloom, and there was the sense that nothing would grow in Hiroshima. And this sort of this saying started that nothing will grow in Hiroshima for seventy five years. And then the next spring, there were sprouts that appeared. So the green vegetation was for such a long time became a symbol because that's saying that for 70 or 75 years nothing would grow and then suddenly the next season uh, some shrubs and plants and trees started sprouting and that really people use that as some sort of uh, um, yeah um, uh, an encouragement to just come back from death and and rethink that their city will in fact one day be rebuilt so the greenery from the very beginning was a very big part of Hiroshima's reconstruction identity. And then the, the, there were a few key survivors. In our case, uh, this was a woman. She was, I think, 21 or 22 when the, when the uh, bomb fell. She lost her leg. Her, her name is 
Suzuko Numata, uh, her fiance. She was supposed to be married three days, i.e., I suppose, 9th of August 1945. Uh, but just shortly after, she heard that her fiance had been killed only a month before. Uh, in China on the front. So she was really, she had lost everything and she was uh, contemplating death and suicide. And uh, three Chinese parasols, which uh, had been growing uh, in the communications uh, bureau where she was working, these uh, trees just came back to life. And from the beginning, she became some sort of a figurehead for the connection between the trees bouncing back and human beings being able to bounce back. And I think her story, and uh, then, of course, in Hiroshima, the, the Chinese parasol, which is called the Aogiri, is a very symbolic tree. It's the tree of Hiroshima. Everybody talks about it. And little by little... It didn't happen suddenly. People started associating these trees and then uh, some citizens groups started marking, oh, this tree existed when I was going to school before the bomb. And I think only in the 70s and 80s did the city of Hiroshima actually start doing uh, a serious listing of which were the trees. Well, then, then for actually, as I said, the Chinese parasol for a long time, uh, has been the the tree of Hiroshima, and the city actually always has these little seedlings uh, behind the main Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum that I am looking at right now because I live very close to it. And so they always gave these trees to prominent visitors or, or visitors who wanted to have some association. But it was done in a, in a sort of ad hoc way. They just gave away these uh, Chinese parasol seedlings and um, when I was the director of the UN office in Hiroshima, we, well, my job was in training. So what we did, we received mostly from Asia Pacific uh, professionals from different backgrounds, and they would come for one week executive training. And uh, part and parcel of our program was to go to the uh, Peace Memorial Park and the Peace Memorial Museum, because I always felt that if you're holding training program uh, for people from all over the world in Hiroshima, well, the purpose is very clear. You you just have to introduce them to uh, this historic event. And people always reacted very emotionally. And whenever they, they would leave after the week or two weeks, they would always ask me, Nasreen, what can we do for Hiroshima? And you and uh, I knew about the trees because I had encountered them here and there, but uh, they were sort of emerging like uh, solitary figures. And I had never sort of put two and two together. But uh, when I decided to become a little bit more of an activist, uh, one reason I thought that the trees should be considered as an ensemble, all of them together, was thanks to a book written by a husband and wife team, I will send you the name, is called Survivors, the A-Bomb Trees of Hiroshima. And this is written by, uh, I think they're Australian and American or Australian Canadian, anyway, Down Under and North America, uh, David Peterson and Mandy Conti. Um, and they, I saw their book in the library, simple as that. And I, they had done, they had lived four or five years in Hiroshima and uh, they had just taken this as some sort of uh, uh, activist hobby by going out every weekend and trying to figure out who were these trees, what was their history, where did they come from. But uh, the single most important contribution they made, at least to my own education, was that they took all of the trees together in roughly 55 locations. And uh, I would say that uh, the only brilliant idea of Green Legacy Hiroshima was to consider, one, that these trees shouldn't just be sent one sapling at a time, but they should be considered as a whole, and that people who would receive the seedlings would have to make a commitment. Uh, in other words, they had to partner have to make a commitment that they will actually care for the saplings and do something with them. Uh, we don't necessarily what it is that they have to do with the trees, but they have to have some peace-related or education or nature-related idea. So uh, 
a green legacy Hiroshima was basically putting uh, the work of Numata San, the city, and generations of people who had started sending the Chinese parasol, just expanded that idea, took all of the 170 trees as one community, and uh, decided that if partners were to receive these seeds and saplings, well, they should have some ideas about where to go with them. And that's how it started. And it just spread like wildfire. I mean, we are a volunteer group and we just can't send enough seeds. And, you know, we want to be selective because quantity is not important for us. Uh, But uh, we're in 30 countries now and we could be in 60 tomorrow if if we wanted to. So it's been wonderful because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm originally from Iran. I'm, I'm a, Muslim by birth. I was educated in Christian and Jewish schools. I'm very attracted to Buddhism and Shintoism. And I really wanted to work with something that doesn't need explanations. And trees, as you know, do that. It doesn't matter if you're from Africa or New York City or or Persia or China. You know, it's tree is a tree. Atomic bomb trees have something to say. And, uh, and it's just been really a learning curve. One of our most wonderful partners happens to be the grandson of President Truman. And Clifton took, I think, about 12 saplings uh, to the U.S. And some of them are growing in the gardens by the Truman Library. And the idea is to plant uh, the survivors of Hiroshima and I think hopefully Nagasaki uh, on the grounds of the library of Truman Library. And I think the symbolism is just uh, incredible. Hey, thank you so much, Billy. Take care.